0: What kind of Christmas lights do you like best? How about the kind that light up the towering tree in the middle of St. Peter's Square? Maybe you prefer the quiet flicker of the luminarias that outline the adobes of Santa Fe? Or how about the high-tech light show on the Las Vegas Strip? Or watching the Eiffel Tower turn into a giant sparkler? We're starting today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at Christmas traditions in Rome and Santa Fe from people who grew up there. Then we'll find out how radio actually saved the Eiffel Tower, as Jill Jones explains how the tower became a hit at the
1: dawn of the modern age. When Thomas Edison came to Paris, he goes off to the Eiffel Tower, and who does he encounter at the very top but Buffalo Bill's Sioux Indians who were there visiting the tower like everyone else. And Pauline Fromer suggests some of the fun things you can
0: do away from the busy strip in Las Vegas.
1: I loved indoor skydiving. Of all the
0: experiences, that was my favorite from the American Southwest to Paris and Rome it's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Just over 120 years ago the critics who panned the futuristic tower dominating the Paris skyline were silenced by the throngs of people from all around the world who wanted to see it. Today that tower is the world's most visited monument. I'm Rick Steves and author Jill Jones joins us in a bit to tell stories of the early years of the Eiffel Tower. Later in the hour We'll get tips from Pauline Fromer about fun things to do, even with the entire family in Las Vegas, Nevada. We're starting off today's Travel with Rick Steves with a little St. Nicholas Day holiday inspiration as we check in on one city's Christmas observances in the Old World as well as the distinctive holiday traditions you'll find in America's oldest capital, Santa Fe. We're thinking about Christmas, and I'm joined by two friends and fellow tour guides from Rome. I've got Francesca Caruso on the line by telephone from Rome, and Susanna Perrucchini is right here in our Seattle area studios. Merry Christmas, Francesca and Susanna.
2: Merry Christmas to you. How do you say
0: Merry Christmas?
3: Bon Natale.
0: Bon Natale. Natale. Let's talk about Christmas in Rome. What's unique about Christmas in Rome?
3: Christmas in Rome is, it's a very family thing. I mean, it's not so much about the decorations, it's not so much about the presents, it is being uh, with your family. So I think that the thing that we invest uh, in in most is is food, for example, to prepare the perfect Christmas Eve meal and the meal on Christmas Day. So there is a saying in Italy that uh, goes, Natale con i tuoi. Pasqua con chi vuoi, which means Christmas with your own, with your own family, and Easter uh, with whom, whoever you wish. So absolutely you have to spend it with your family. So uh, something that we traditionally do at Christmas is we go on a walk and we go to the main churches to see the nativity scenes that they set up, and then maybe a quick stop at the Christmas fair in Piazza Navona, and then a concert in the churches. Within the past few years, I have to say, Gospels, American Gospels, the Italian have discovered an absolute passion for, and they're Becoming more and more popular, so we have a lot of singers from the States who come and sing. Oh, gospel wow, for American us at Gospel.
2: Yes, oh, yes, yes. it's it great.
3: adore it.
0: Now, it was fun to look at Susanna as you were saying that phrase. Say the phrase again, Susanna.
2: Is Natale con i tuoi, Pasqua con chi vuoi.
0: Now, Francesca talked about the food is important. Susanna, tell me about your image of the classic Roman Christmas feast.
2: When my mother moved from Padova to Rome, she started to cook differently. So in the northern part of Italy, we use more butter rice, and of course in the south, tomato... It's a little bit more tasty, uh, so she melted <laughs> uh, what I call um, Veneto Lazio cuisine. Uh, at, in my house, uh, what my mother cooked wonderfully, and uh, it's very typical from Rome: artichokes.
0: So Lazio meaning the state of Rome, yeah, Rome the is region the state of Lazio, yes. and then the Veneto mm-hmm. would be Verona and Venice.
2: Yes, exactly. And now, Madova.
0: Francesca, in Rome, of course, this eel is a big deal, right? What, <laughs> what's with the eel on Christmas? Yeah, I still
2: have a
3: horrible memory of my childhood with my my... My dad bringing the live eel home and the poor eel (laughs) moving around in the kitchen sink as he had to.
0: So the eel is flailing around in the kitchen sink as as the (laughs) relatives are coming over for Christmas. You've got a fresh one.
3: Yes, yes, but that's a great advantage of having an American mother as I do, that she put an end to the eel (laughs) in the sink. An end
0: to the eel, like killing it or ending the tradition and not having it anymore?
3: Well, not having it anymore. Okay, so (laughs) no more eels in
0: your family. Why do they have an eel traditionally for Christmas in Rome?
3: Because it's fish. Yes, Christmas Eve is fish, and the Roman specialty on Christmas Eve is fried things. So it can be anything from pieces of vegetable to pieces of fish to pieces of fruit like apple dipped in a very, very light batter and fried. This is the absolutely Roman specialty.
0: Huh. Now you mentioned it's a multi-generational thing. It's a time for the family to be together and for the little children. We have uh, St. Nicholas coming and, and so on, and you've got something called La Bafana.
3: Lubafan comes uh, comes on the sixth of January, and if children have been bad, if they've misbehaved, she will bring them coal, which is normally made of sugar. Uh, And if they've been good, she will bring gifts to them. Oh, so Mm.
0: kids get black sugar, like fake coal, but they can eat it like candy. Yes,
3: yes. Ah.
0: Now Lubafan is like a witch on a broomstick, right? Yes, yes. And yes. you've got your Christmas season that really, for a tourist, if you like all the festivities for Christmas, all the markets and so on, they go until January 6th.
2: Yes, exactly. And that's yes, Epiphany. Uh, January 6th is the last day of the Christmas season. That vacation. was when
0: I guess that's after Twelve Days of Christmas.
3: Listen, imagine. Uh, yeah. When the three yeah. kings the finally three brought kids. the gifts. Exactly. Yeah. So that and marks the end we, of the Christmas That's season. when we put away our nativity scenes and we take the decorations off the tree. Because mm-hmm.
0: I've been to Rome many times after Christmas, like for New Year's, and I've got all this Christmas fun on the streets, and it really is this La Befana festivity that yes. people do. Yes, are absolutely. And yes. everybody's on the Piazza Navona, and they've Christmas market.
2: Yeah, that is the place where you usually want to see the Befana coming down. Usually, they use this big, rag doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, like La Befana, coming down the roofs of Rome to the the main square, which is uh, Piazza Navona. So Piazza Navona is the, the place where you want to be on the 6th on the night before.
0: And just yes. like little kids in America get photographed with Santa Claus, I think little kids in uh, Rome get photographed with this La Befana.
2: Yes, even yes, though yes. Santa Claus is a Babbo Natale, it's something ah. that we know. <laughs> Always
0: there. And yes. in Rome, the presepi is a big deal. That That's the local word for manger scenes?
2: Eh, presepio, yes. Presepio. Yes, and you yes, find and churches
0: work really hard to make beautiful pres- uh, manger scenes.
3: They really do. They really do. There's some beautiful ones. Even if I have to say, maybe, uh, I think, Susanna, you agree that the most beautiful Presepi in Italy are the ones made in Naples. Exactly. But we have a, in the 1700s, especially, and we have a fantastic one that's on display all year round in uh, Rome by the Roman Forum, which is absolutely worth a visit. But, you know, even in homes, I mean, I remember when I was a child and we made uh, our nativity scene in our fireplace, and we used to actually move the little figurines, and we put the little figurine of baby Jesus in the crib exactly at midnight on Christmas Eve.
0: Oh. Doesn't the tradition go back to St. Francis?
3: St. Francis created yes. the uh, nativities to help uh, tell the story of the birth of
0: Christ. So he was such a creative teacher, and he used that to help tell the Christmas story.
3: Yeah, we and still August, do it. And too, no?
0: Yeah, yeah. And today, when you go to Naples, you find entire streets dedicated yes. to selling little figurines for the Persepio.
2: Months ahead of time. And,
0: of course, the grandest manger scene is the size of a regular house. Yes. And it's on the main square at St. Peter's in front of yes. the church. Yes, yes.
3: yes. With yes. the big and tree.
0: They? Well, now, who brings this big tree?
3: Every year it comes from a different area, and there is a very long waiting list for villages in the mountains and the Alps that want to send it.
0: So, Catholic villages all over Christendom are trying to send the Pope a tree for Christmas. All right. I've been talking with Francesca Caruso from Rome and Susanna Perrocchini right here in our studio, and we're celebrating Christmas all over the world. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Buon Natale. Buon Natale. (laughs) Buon Natale
0: (laughs) a (laughs) tutti. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Zora O'Neill writes the Moon Handbook to New Mexico, and New Mexico has a, a distinct way of celebrating the holidays. And uh, Zora, thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you. It's great Z- to be here.
0: Zora, you grew up in New Mexico, and you're working now as the expert on New Mexico for Moon Guide Guidebooks. Uh, what is unique about New Mexican Christmas celebrations?
4: Honestly, it feels a little pagan. Uh, There's tons of fire, which is fascinating. Probably the image that people know best is all the luminarias, which are the little paper bags. They're filled with sand to weight them down with a candle inside, and they give off this beautiful golden glow, and people use them to line streets and put along the edges of the roofs on their houses and things like that. So the whole cityscape in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Taos, pretty much everywhere in the state gets dotted with these luminarias, Hmm. which, not to get too bogged down in technicalities, but up in northern New Mexico, they've started calling them ferrolitos anyway. So it's a debate you'll wade into when you get there. Uh, But it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And then in Santa Fe, on Christmas Eve... In part of the city, they light bonfires all along the street and people sort of walk from bonfire to bonfire and all the galleries are open. It's a very sort of special Santa Fe vibe. I remember being up there once, and the kind of carols that people were singing were, for instance, you can't always get what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Not Wait. the most traditional selections.
0: Well, speaking of a special vibe, I think that's unique about New Mexico because you've got this hippie culture overlaid with the Indian culture, overlaid with the Spanish colonial culture, and uh, it shows itself in different times of year.
4: Yeah, it's great. And Christmas is when sort of everybody comes out in the street and does their thing together. At the Pueblos, um, pretty much every Pueblo has a dance on Christmas Eve. And this is one of the most amazing times to go visit a Pueblo if you have a chance. It's late at night. I remember when I was a child, I didn't appreciate this at all because it was a freezing cold and had to stay up really late and I was tired and walk a long way and You're standing there, like, under the stars, blinking in the freezing cold Mm. air, and you hear the drums beating from miles and miles away.
0: So you have that almost pagan-feeling culture with the drums and the fires, but on the cover of your book, you've got uh, Christian crosses with Indian art on them. So there there is that colonial Christian-Mexican sort of style of Christianity also in the Indian communities, is that right?
4: Yes, definitely. I mean, it's very, very syncretic. I remember being at a dance a few years ago, and they did Christmas mass and then sort of in the middle of the mass while the priest was talking, some of the dancers, sort of the clown figure dancers worked their way up to the altar and sort of hustled the uh, priest off away from the front of the church and then the dances began. So there's this almost – there's a very <laughs> conscious blending there. It's it's very smart, and it's fun to be a part of.
0: That's all over the world. It's fun to see how uh, the modern Christian faith would be incorporated, or previous indigenous aspects of the culture would be incorporated into people's Christian rituals, and uh, that would happen even at an Indian mass in New Mexico at Christmas time. then.
4: Mm-hmm. And the Spanish villages, a lot of the old, old Spanish villages also have their own dances. One of them is the Matachinas, and the fiddle music that is played at those dances is I have some recordings of it, and occasionally when I'm feeling homesick, I listen. It's some of the most beautiful music you'll hear. There are just so many opportunities, especially around Christmas, to stumble across amazing things in the dark with the fire.
0: I'm speaking with Zora O'Neill, who writes the Moon Handbook to New Mexico. And uh, Zora, you grew up in New Mexico. When you think back to your childhood, what sort of edible memories do you have of Christmas?
4: (laughs) I have one very specific memory. Uh, One time we were at the Taos Pueblo at the governor's house, which sounds fancy, but it's not. It's just one of the little houses in the center of the Pueblo, one of the old mud brick houses. And there was this huge spread and it was sort of an open house. We could all sort of run in and out and I was maybe like six. And I remember being totally transfixed with this bowl of little spiced gumdrops because I, as a child of hippies, did not get sugar. So it's funny, like Christmas in New Mexico, spicy gumdrops. But <laughs> I think other people have some broader associations. There are tamales. People go crazy making tamales around Christmas because it's a very festive thing when you make them. You get all your friends together. You make a huge batch of them, and then you have a party, and you give some of them away. So tamales are especially delicious around then. And
0: any time of year, if you, if you want to mix your chili peppers, what, do you, what can you say if you want green and red?
4: Ah, uh, you say, I'd like Christmas to your server at the restaurant. It's very handy. So, you know, even if you're missing Christmas, you can still have a little bit of it on your plate all year round in New Mexico. And
0: even if you're a a red chili person most of the year at Christmas, you can say, I'd like it.
4: Exactly. Christmasy, red (laughs) and green.
0: Zora O'Neill, thanks so much for giving us an insight into New Mexico, and best wishes with your work as the author of The Moon Guide to New Mexico.
4: Thank you so much. And Feliz Navidad.
0: Feliz Navidad. Ah. Up next, Jill Jones explains how the Eiffel Tower quickly became and remains a world icon. And Pauline Fromer tells us about her favorite fun things to do in Las Vegas. It's travel with Rick Steves. Seven seven three 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 seven four two five. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. Our next stop, Paris. Paris, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And if there's one icon in Europe that you think of as far as an attraction, it's got to be the Eiffel Tower. I mean, an 18,000-piece erector set, two and a half million rivets, 60 tons of paint, built back when they couldn't imagine something so tall. And even today, 120 years later, it just takes your breath away. We're talking about Eiffel Tower today. We're, we're talking with Jill Jones, who's written a book called Eiffel's Tower that looks at the construction of this and the historic and social context as this was built back in 1889. Jill Jones, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Take us back in your book, Eiffel's Tower, to the year 1889. Why was the Eiffel Tower built in 1889? Give us the the context here.
1: So the French Republic uh, had had a number of rocky decades. They were surrounded by monarchies and they wanted to make the point that democracy and self-made people were really superior. And so they decided to hold this 100th anniversary World's Fair celebrating the downfall of the Bastille. And the French had actually been doing these fairs for quite a while, and they had a genius for them. But they needed a very spectacular centerpiece, and they held a contest. And Gustave Eiffel, who was a self-made millionaire railway bridge designer and builder with a global empire, came up with uh, some in-house architects with this spectacular design.
0: This is the 100th anniversary of the falling of the Bastille. That means they cut the head of the French uh, king and queen off, and it was the beginning of the Republic. Is that right? So they're reminding people this is the world's great democracy. And you pronounced his name Eiffel? Eiffel. Eiffel? Well, that's a French. We would say Eiffel. Eiffel. Okay, (laughs) so if you're talking to a French person, Eiffel.
1: In any case, so they needed a very spectacular centerpiece, and uh, Eiffel's tower was going to be it for a variety of reasons. Foremost because it was going to be the tallest structure in the world, a 1,000 feet tall. And just to put that in context for the time, the tallest building up until then was the Washington Monument at 555 feet tall. So this was really almost double almost the height. Almost double. And, of course, it was a radically different design, so radical that it was, in fact, loathed by the French intelligentsia, and the artists and architects of the time who wrote this, I mean, in retrospect, very hilarious letter denouncing the tower as a hideous blot and factory chimney. And the the phrase in the letter I always loved was... Not even commercial America would have it.
0: Oh, my goodness. What an insult. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I heard that one leading writer actually made a point to eat in the Eiffel Tower so he wouldn't have to look at it during lunch.
1: That was, yes, ski de Maupassant. In fact, so all these artists and architects and painters, very famous painters, denounced the Eiffel Tower and tried to derail the project with no success. And afterwards, all of them ate their words because, in fact, as the tower rose in Belle Epoque, Paris, It was obvious to everyone that this was a really beautiful, mathematically gorgeous building.
0: I mean, it even had an effect on fashion, didn't it? You write about Eiffel Red.
1: And that's actually something I I don't know the reason for this. I don't know why the Eiffel Tower is not the red that it was when it was first built. And it was red at the bottom. And then as it progressed skyward, the paint color got more and more yellow, If anyone out there knows why the Eiffel Tower today is this, in my opinion, somewhat kind of dreary gray, I'd love to know.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jill Jones, who's written a book called Eiffel's Tower, taking us back to 1889 when this incredible structure was was put up in Paris, became the icon of Europe. Uh, Jennifer's on the line in San Francisco. Jennifer, thanks for your call.
2: Yes, uh, you
1: you mentioned at the beginning that, uh, and I certainly agree with you, that the Eiffel Tower is an icon and that it takes your breath away. And it's well known that it it, uh, did the same thing for the French. They were also left breathless upon first sight of the Eiffel Tower, but because they were horrified, (laughs) sadly. But yes, you know, as people will be to to something so new and and modern for its
4: day. And I'm wondering if, uh, for Ms. Jones, if any of the famous Americans whose story you
1: chronicle in your book, did any of them have similar reactions of just disgust and indignation, or
4: or was the reaction really wholly favorable?
1: The Americans were enormously jealous. Ah. Uh, the, the whole idea of a thousand-foot tower came from first British and then American engineers. And so when the French were the ones who carried this off, um, all the Americans who came to the World's Fair, which is what the tower was built for, their reaction to it was twofold. One, they were going to build a much taller tower. Thomas Edison was one of the Americans who came to the fair and his presence caused a great sensation. But he would say, well, we will build the tower but 2,000 feet, twice better. That was very much the, the attitude, that Americans were going to build a much bigger tower. Now, interestingly, There was not a taller building than the Eiffel Tower until the Chrysler Building was completed in 1929. So Eiffel Mm. died at a very ripe old age, and his structure was still the tallest building in the world.
0: For 40 years, that's quite astounding when you think of all the progress that happened in that next generation or two.
1: The thing that the Americans um, assuaged themselves with is that one of the elevators in the Eiffel Tower, the most complicated and difficult one that had to go from the ground through the curved leg to the second floor it was an Otis elevator. And the fact that this was an American company was always mentioned by the Americans mm. <laughs> to uh, make themselves feel better about the fact that another country had beaten them uh, by having the tallest building.
0: But we well, we contributed the elevator. I love, Jill, how you talk about the stress Eiffel was under as they were rushing to complete this elevator in time for opening day of the World's Fair and they didn't quite make it, and uh, I could just see Eiffel thinking, we've got to get this elevator up and running. Hey, Joe, when I think about the uh, age that the Eiffel Tower was made in 1889, it's sort of the industrial age, and my understanding was, you'd lay out your inventory, and you'd have it all ordered, and all the inventory, all your girders and your rivets and everything would come on schedule. You'd build it on schedule, and they even had a plan to take it down, I think, on schedule, didn't they? It was originally planned to stay up just for 20 years, and and then they would take it down and clap their and it would be a done deal.
1: Well, what happened was originally the French government was going to pay the full cost. They reneged, leaving Eiffel with only a million of the francs that he needed of the 5 million francs. So he was a very successful businessman and he managed to raise that remaining 4 million francs. But the condition was that the tower would stay up for 20 years so he could recoup his investment. Well, in fact, by the time the fair was over in November of 1889, after six months, he had already recouped his investment. So the tower was very profitable. But the real thing for Eiffel was he took huge pride in this creation. And so from the time the tower went up, the big challenge was how could he make sure it never came back down? And he Hmm. was, uh, I think he was a genius.
0: Talk about the practical uses that he came
1: up with. He was quite defensive about the tower because many people kept on describing it as being useless and what was the point of it and so forth. And so from the very beginning, he was using it to study weather. And he had all these rooms on the very pinnacle of the tower that were given over to scientists who did all kinds of astronomical investigations and they studied the sun and the winds and so forth. But what saved the tower was the minute radio became a new form of communication, Eiffel spent his own money to have radio installed at the very top of the tower, and then invited the French military to make use of this. And it didn't take that long before the military realized that strategically, this was very handy. And so in the end, I mean, that was what saved the tower.
0: So Marconi saved the tower. Yes. And did it have a practical use in World War I, as it turned out, as France was fighting for its very existence?
1: There are many charming stories attached to the tower. And one was that the radio equipment intercepted a message from the Germans saying that they couldn't move forward with their cavalry because they did not have enough hay to feed their horses. So uh, that enabled the French then to move their own armies around in a way they hadn't uh, been planning to that helped save Paris.
0: Wow, fascinating! I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the history of Eiffel's Tower uh, with Jill Jones, who's just written a book called Eiffel's Tower. Uh, the subtitle of the book is "In the World's Fair Where Buffalo Bill Beguiled Paris, the Artists Quarreled, and Thomas Edison Became a Count." You know, Jill, when you when you write your book, it's not only about the Eiffel Tower; it's about how the world came together to celebrate the dawn of the modern age. I think at the Great World's Fair in Paris in 1889, and it was a coming together of uh, both the uh, traditional, you know, cowboys and Buffalo Bill Cody and uh, Annie Oakley, and then people who were um, sort of looking into the future. Thomas Edison saw this as a great opportunity to introduce his phonograph to Europe. Uh, Why did you splice in Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill and Thomas Edison with Gustav Eiffel?
1: Well, because they were all there very much, as really was Eiffel, to promote their own agendas. The whole idea of these World's Fairs was to bring to those who came to them, and I believe 36 million people attended the Paris Fair of 1889. And so one of the things that's really charming about this fair is these unlikely crossings of the paths. And if you just want to look only at the Eiffel Tower, when Thomas Edison came to Paris, he had never been to Europe. He got off the boat. He says, I'm here like everyone else to see the Eiffel Tower. And Within the day, he goes off to the Eiffel Tower, and who does he encounter at the very top but Buffalo Bill's Indians, the Sioux Indians, who were there visiting the tower like everyone else? I mean, it's just such an unlikely
0: wow. crossings of the past. 1889, <laughs> top of the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> Buffalo Bill and his Indians <laughs> meets Thomas Alva Edison. Yes. And Gustav Eiffel tips his little top hat.
1: Well, and then, of course, Eiffel was yearning to meet Thomas Edison and vice versa. And so they had a very elegant lunch uh, with many engineers, after which Eiffel invited Edison and his wife and daughter and his entourage to ascend to the top, where Eiffel had a very elegant apartment. And if you go to the top of the Eiffel Tower today, and I just did this in June of this year... You will see there's a very small part of the apartment that is still preserved, and you can look through a a thick piece of glass. And there are these mannequins, one of Edison, one of Eiffel, and then the phonograph, because, of course, everywhere Edison went, he took a phonograph and presented it. And that Hmm. phonograph is – I assume it's the same photograph – is still there. And the very famous composer, Gounod, happened to also be on the tower that day. And Eiffel said, well, come on up with us, and and why don't you entertain us? Because Eiffel had a baby grand piano in his apartment. And so you just have to envision this kind of wonderful, unlikely people together. So Eiffel, Edison, and then Gounod playing the piano and serenading uh, them and all the engineers.
0: At what level on the Eiffel Tower is the piano?
1: The very pinnacle. Well, I, I don't believe it's there anymore. They the carried very top. the
0: grand piano up to the very top. That's like 1,500 steps, I think.
1: I'm guessing they did it up. with a crane.
0: <laughs> That's well, amazing. Oh. <laughs> but the Eiffel Tower to this day brings people together. You know, we've had so many emails from people. I just got to read some of these emails because the Eiffel Tower just resonates with people in our year just as much as uh, 120 years ago. Rachel in Lakeside, California wrote My happy place is beneath the Eiffel Tower. I like to stand beneath it right in the middle and gaze up into its magnificence. It symbolizes everything I dreamed about as a child and more. I will continue to return, gaze up, and smile. I can relate to Rachel standing right there in the in the middle of it below Charles in uh, Carlsbad wrote uh, in California, My mom was a great teacher and a friend to many music students over decades. At one point in her early life, when I was just a boy, she owned a lending library and became an armchair traveler with a special love for Paris. She would not travel, but on our 14th visit to the City of Lights, that's Paris, a month or so after she passed away, I placed her ashes under the Eiffel Tower, where I'm sure her spirit lingers even today. So people who even haven't been there aspire to, to, to go to the Eiffel Tower. Kathleen in Gerard, Ohio, writes, My three daughters and I visited the Eiffel Tower on our first visit to Paris in the summer of 2008. When we returned in the evening to see the tower lighting, we were surprised to see so many people gathered in the park. There was a festival-like atmosphere with young people playing frisbee, couples frolicking, a number of people growing exponentially as the lighting time drew near when the tower was lit it began to sparkle with an amazing shimmering beauty and then transformed from a brilliant gold to a gorgeous blue and the thousands of people around us began to cheer we were enchanted and enthralled leaving the park later that night we overheard that the lighting had been a special event celebrating france's term as head of the european union my daughters and I will always treasure that memory of the Eiffel Tower, stunning in its stark intricacy in the daylight and breathtaking in the shimmering glamour of its extraordinary nighttime brilliance, the exuberant cheers of the French people and their guests still ringing in our ears. Viva la France! Boy, you must have experienced that, Joe, when you were writing this book, the, uh, the power of the Eiffel Tower, even today for people to have magical experiences as they visit Paris.
1: Well, I think one of the things that, that is so special about the Eiffel Tower is how playful it is. I mean, I I really thought about this quite a bit. It's the only structure that I can think of where you can both be inside it and outside it at the same time because of the way you can go up the steps. And people do really experience the Eiffel Tower because they're on it and they're in the elements. So whatever is happening with the weather, you're experiencing that. And then yet you can go inside. I mean, there are restaurants and gift shops and what have you. And there's just this excitement and playfulness with all the crowds and the different nationalities and people growing up and people going down. And then there's often these events. I mean, I think almost any time you go to the Eiffel Tower, something is happening there. And that's very much the way they want it to be. So I was there when I was working on this book, and they were having skateboarding in the middle of the Eiffel Tower. So it's always just this very lively place. There is a quality of play to the tower itself that I think really speaks to people and is why we are so attached to it, even though it's 120 years old. It does not feel old at all. I think it's timeless in the way it connects to people as a piece of architecture.
0: You know, it really does have that chance to put you in the elements. Josie from Long Beach, California, emailed us and she says, the day we went to the top of Eiffel's Tower, a short but intense thunderstorm rolled through Paris. They were letting people go down but not come up. Those of us who stayed had an awesome wet and windy experience. (laughs) I can imagine that, looking out over the gleaming mansart rooftops of Paris and those sparkling golden domes and being high above it all on Eiffel's Tower, that celebration of what humankind can do at the dawn of the modern age. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Jill Jones, who's written a, a fascinating book called Eiffel's Tower. Jill, take us back to the Eiffel Tower one more time. You must have had so much fun delving into this.
1: Well, the thought that I have been left with, uh, having spent a few years working on the Eiffel Tower, is that once you become a fan of the Eiffel Tower, you realize that you see it almost every day somewhere. It's so famous. It's so iconic. I've gotten into this habit with my husband. I say, oh, there's my Eiffel Tower for the day because it's so woven into the fabric of our society. It's such a symbol of glamour and romance and, of course, of France that um, I began to realize that it was there on the dry cleaners' canopy, that it's in movies, it's in books. Every day I feel as if pretty much I see the Eiffel Tower. And, of course, you always just get a little frisson of joy from that.
0: It's a part of the experience of being... Human on this planet. 245 million people have climbed this tower, and that resonates across the globe. Jill Jones, author of Eiffel's Tower, congratulations on a fascinating book and thanks so much for joining us.
1: And thank you so much for having me. Merci beaucoup et bon voyage. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up next, Pauline Frommer
0: guides us through one of her favorite cities, Las Vegas. She shares fun things to do that you wouldn't know about if you just stuck with the crowds on the strip. Eight seven seven three 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 rick That's our phone number, and your comments and travel stories are always welcome in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. One of the most popular tourist attractions in the entire United States is Las Vegas. Lately, Las Vegas has had a little bad luck of its own, and we're going to check in with the author of Pauline Fromer's Las Vegas to see what's going on in Sin City. Sure, a lot more than gambling and sin to enjoy in Las Vegas, and uh, Pauline Fromer joins us to get us up to date. Pauline, thanks for dropping by. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. Pauline, what is the latest right now economically on Las Vegas?
5: Well, it's been particularly tough on Las Vegas, mostly because this is a city that really relied on conventions. And uh, a lot of businesses simply are not sending their officers to conventions any longer. So a lot of conventions have been canceled And Las Vegas itself has lost a lot of the flights that used to go there. Because you had so many leisure travelers, these routes weren't as profitable for the airlines as those that get more business travelers. And so nowadays, there are 20% fewer flights than there used to be. A final crushing blow to Vegas. It used to be they had a lot of drive-in traffic from California. Now those folks stop at Native American casinos along the way. So a, a triple whammy hitting Vegas. But that means For anybody who wants to go, prices are lower than they have been in
0: years. So you've written this book, Pauline Frommer's Las Vegas. You've researched it yourself personally. What, you spent a couple months there just checking all this information out?
5: I know. I have a very tough life, don't I? (laughs) I spent a a couple of months in Vegas, yep.
0: And there's more to the city than just gambling and lounges and strip joints. Uh, You've even got a chapter for families and so on. Yeah. If you don't like to gamble, is there any reason to go to Las Vegas?
5: I think there is. Uh, You know, you don't think of it as being a cultural center, but because so many tourists go there, it has some very good cultural and, and historic attractions. Right outside of Vegas is where the atomic bomb was developed. After the Manhattan Project was done, it moved to outside of Vegas, and you can go to the Atomic Testing Museum, which is an offshoot, believe it or not, of the Smithsonian It's a fascinating museum where you hear about the development of the bomb. You learn a lot about physics. You go into a theater where they tell you about how it was developed, and then this being Vegas, the whole floor shakes, so you feel like you're in the midst of an explosion. There's another wonderful new museum. It opened just a year ago called the Spring Preserve. Uh, Vegas was an oasis in the middle of the desert. The reason it blossomed into a city was that there was water there. Hmm. And so the Spring Preserve tells about what it means to be a city dependent on dwindling water supplies. Uh, it tells the story both in terms of Vegas and also globally, what it means to live in a world with, with dwindling water. It's well, a, very a very serious timely, effort.
0: That's a timely effort, and in, in the American Southwest, particular poignant. I mm-hmm. really appreciated in your book the experiences that you highlight for travelers. Of course, you're going to go there and enjoy the shows and the gambling and so on and on the sure. strip. But uh, just very briefly comment on, on these experiences as I go through them. Uh, okay. Uh, martinis with the mayor.
5: Well, the mayor of Las Vegas is a real character. His name is Oscar Goodman. He used to be a mob lawyer, and he once a month, uh, sometimes more than that, has these open Martini with the Mayor sessions. He announces it on his website. You go to a certain bar, and you can drink with the mayor, and it's kind of like being in the presence of a medieval monarch. People come to him to uh, ask him to help them in, in certain ways. They line up. They drink with him. They socialize but they also lay their problems out
0: in front of him, and it's fascinating to see. So locals go there, but visitors can get in on that action at the same time.
5: Yeah, and meet the mayor. How often are you going to tipple with the mayor?
0: And you actually went to a a place where you shot a machine gun, an (laughs) AK-47? I did. (laughs) I know you enough to know I just can't see you holding an AK-47.
5: It has quite a kick. It (laughs) it (laughs) it was a little frightening. You know, you're standing there. It's like when you're at a very tall ledge and you have this impulse to jump. Uh, I felt the same holding a machine gun, like, who am I going to hit with this, even though I was aimed towards a target. But, yes, you get to pick your target. Uh, this is a big thing that people do during bachelor parties, and uh, I have to say it was kind of fun.
0: So you go outside of town and you just spray in the direction it's actually, of
5: the target. No, it's right in town. In uh, you're town? In a, you're Shoot in, out all the you're lights. You're in a gun store. <laughs> wow. I guess I could have done that, but, no, you're in an, in an indoor shooting range.
0: And you just you just spray in the direction of the target and you're going to hit it, kind of like spray painting?
5: Well, they can move the target back as far as you want. And for a novice like me, it was so close, there was no way I wasn't going to hit it. But they also <laughs> let you choose the target. So it could be a picture of Osama bin Laden oh. uh, or some other person who you hate. Uh, it's, it's a strange uh, experience. And yeah. a lot
0: of people are into their alcohol when they go to Vegas and you can go to a bartending school or a bartending uh, seminar.
5: Well, you used to be able to go to the bartending school. That is since closed. And in, in the next edition of my book, we won't have that. But what you can do is you can learn to be a dealer in Vegas. And it's really fun to sit in on a dealer's school class uh, and learn the tricks of the trade and, and how they're going to get you to gamble more than you want to.
0: But what if you just always wanted to be a stripper?
5: (laughs) You can do that, too. Believe it or not, there is a class. It's only for women, so if you're a little shy... Although, why are you going to a stripper class if you're shy? Well, anyway, uh, you go to this class, and they teach you how to dance around a pole. Uh, A lot of women do it for bachelorette parties, and it's it's fun, I have to say, and it's a good workout, too. You did it? I did it. I did everything in the book.
0: You did everything in the book. That's (laughs) fun. Well, you know, experiences are very fundamental part of travel and too many people just look at things through the window and you want to actually do it. Indoor skydiving? I loved indoor skydiving. Of
5: all the experiences we've mentioned, that was my favorite. This was something that was developed for the uh, Air Force. They wanted to teach people how to jump out of planes better. And so you go into a circular room, below you is a huge fan, kind of like the propeller on an airplane and it shoots huge gusts of air up and you wear a very baggy suit and you stand above it and you fly. And it's, it's great. And the room is padded, so you can't get hurt. I loved it. I, oh, I, I, was I guess picturing, I've always wanted to fly.
0: I was picturing climbing up a long staircase and then just jumping out and, and pulling the ripcord. Oh, but no. No. You just get blown up upwards. in the air with a baggy coat. Uh-huh.
5: As if you were a leaf.
0: My goodness. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're flying as if we are leaves in Las Vegas with Pauline Fromer. <laughs> she writes the Pauline Fromer's Las Vegas Guide. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Nathan's on the phone in Orem, Utah. Nathan, thanks for your call.
6: Thanks, Rick. My wife and I frequently go to um, Las Vegas, although we don't gamble and we don't drink. Uh, We take our kids with us in our RV, stay in one of the several RV parks throughout Vegas, and uh, that way we can uh, save on going out to eat, by uh, shopping at the grocery store, bringing it home and cooking. Basically, our, our RV is our home, our mobile home away from home. Uh, there are several things that we like to do with our kids um, that are free or very low cost. We like to go to the Lead Discovery Children's Museum, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful museum with several floors with activities for the kids to do.
0: So that's L-I-E-D, Lead Discovery Children's Museum.
6: Okay. Yes, it's a wonderful
5: museum. My kids loved it too.
6: And if you're an ASTC member, well, we're members through our local planetarium. Uh, admission is free.
0: And what is ASTC?
6: Hmm. Uh, the Association of Science and Technology Centers.
0: Oh, I guess I'm not a member. Oh, well. <laughs> so, but your point, Nathan, is that you can go there and um, RV park or camp and enjoy yes. other cultural adventures that don't involve gambling, uh, strippers, or alcohol. Right.
6: Yeah, we, we also like the FLM Chocolate Factory. Oh, there you go. C- cactus Garden outside.
0: Pauline, you've got two daughters, and uh, did you I've have the two kids daughters. in Vegas during your research? I
5: had them with me for part of the time. I think that it's great you're staying in an RV park, because the bad thing for family travelers in Vegas is that to get to your hotel room, you usually have to walk through a casino. And I had some qualms about my kids seeing what you see in a casino. Sometimes you see grown people crying or people acting in very inappropriate ways. Uh, but by staying in the RV park, you keep them away from it. <laughs> um, I I have mixed feelings about uh, taking kids to Vegas. To be frank, uh, you often are standing on the streets, and they have trucks with big painted signboards for prostitutes. Um, you see people acting in very bad ways. I was worried that my kids would get transfixed by the lights and the thoughts of easy money. So I, I had some serious talks with them before uh, they came to Vegas. But there are great things for them to do. As you said, the lead is wonderful. I love to take them to Red Rock Canyon for hiking, uh, the Atomic Testing Museum, the Liberace Museum, the kids loved. So there are good things for kids there. But I, I do think you have to
0: talk to them before they go to Vegas. Nathan, have your kids been uh, exposed to things that, that made you and your wife uncomfortable as parents?
6: Uh, yes, they were, uh, especially the um, people standing on on the sidewalks passing out literature for for the uh, uh, prostitutes or in-home, in-room home strippers hmm. but uh, we did talk to them they're six and four respectively and we just make sure that they know that some well, things that here are,
0: you know that's are, a that's a, that's a parenting style it's just there's a real world out there and we're going to hold your hand and, and let you learn how to deal with it Nathan thanks for your call thank you Barbara's on the line in San Diego Barbara thanks for your call
5: had a comment or a suggestion actually um i go to las vegas quite a bit myself for business and it's a great place to have a reunion if you have
1: friends and family that are in several different places around the country because they always have good package deals from just about every place
0: so it's probably cheaper for a family reunion to, let's say you're scattered all over the country, if you got a rendezvous somewhere, if you added up all the air costs, it would probably be cheaper to get everybody together in Vegas.
5: Yeah, that's it exactly.
0: Pauline, does that make sense?
5: Absolutely. Not only air hotel packages, if you're willing to rent a house. Unfortunately, Vegas was hit by the housing crisis more badly than most cities. And so you have a lot of homes that are there that are now turned into vacation rentals. You can go through local companies and put your whole group in one for very little money.
0: And how would you find those places?
5: Well, a book called <laughs> you'd Pauline look at my Las book, book yeah. Pauline Frommer's Las <laughs> Vegas, which talks about some of the top rental companies. Uh, that's the easiest way to do it, quite frankly, because the hotels in Vegas are so powerful that they don't really want
0: people advertising that this is a, that this is a hmm. possibility. Barbara, thanks for your call. You're welcome. John's on the line in Trenton, New Jersey. John.
6: Hi, how are you doing today?
0: Great. Thanks for your call. Thoughts on Vegas?
6: Yeah, Vegas is one of my favorite tourist destinations because anytime I go there, you could stay, we'll say, at a first class hotel for a really cheap price. I was actually online this morning and I actually found um, a hotel such as Stratosphere for about $30, Luxor for about $60. It's unbelievable. Hmm. Cause a couple of years ago, it would cost you a good $200 a night. Mind you, of course, this is midweek. So you're going to go right.
0: Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Those Those are the cheap nights?
6: Yeah, Monday through Wednesday are usually the cheapest ones. If you try Thursday, Friday, Saturday, then you get the weekend crowd. It becomes a lot more expensive then. But if you go midweek,
0: I would figure that. I would imagine the airfare is a, on a similar kind of cycle. If you're trying to fly there on a on a Friday, you're going to pay a top dollar, wouldn't you, Pauline?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Vegas is cheaper in many ways. Not only hotel prices, but every single uh, show on the Strip is being deeply discounted. There are wonderful kiosks up and down the Strip called Ticks for Tonight. And when I was last in Vegas, you could get literally every show on the Strip with maybe three exceptions for half price. As well, they're discounting food. At the Tix for Tonight booth, you can buy coupons for 2 or $3, which get you half-off meals at some very nice restaurants. Wow,
0: this sounds great. What is the name of that booth
5: again? Tix for Tonight. You'll find five of them up and down the strip.
0: So T-I-X, Tix for Tonight. Pauline, you wrote that uh, the Cirque du Soleil is redefined entertainment in Las Vegas. What do you mean by that? <laughs>
5: Well, now almost every show you go to has some Cirque-like touch to it. Even if there's no point for it, suddenly somebody is doing acrobatics or hanging from a rope. Uh, sometimes even in, you know, a singer is singing. When Celine Dion had her show, which has since closed, you could barely find Celine on stage because there were so many acrobats you know, bouncing all Ah, around her. And that's
0: been the Cirque influence then, this over-the-top kind of stage show.
5: Yes. I don't know if it's over-the-top. It's it's an aesthetic. Uh, It's very surreal in terms of its imagery. Uh, it's very focused on acrobatic tricks. Hmm. Uh, and so you're seeing them in all kinds of shows. You know, when I was reviewing, uh, I have a whole chapter on the shows of Vegas. I went and saw 82 long-running shows, including topless shows, you know, strip shows. And even in those, they now have acrobats for hmm. God-knows-why reason.
0: Uh, now, you were impressed by the fountain shows at Bellagio, weren't you?
5: I love the fountains at Bellagio. They really are spectacular. And, you know, they were engineered in a fascinating way, kind of like laser beams. They found a way to twist the water as it comes out of the fountain. So it's not just a normal fountain. It can do many more things than most fountains do, mostly because of the engineering. It's, it's really a,
0: a marvel. And Pauline, when we're talking about gambling, you mentioned that blackjack is one of the more social games and the best odds for players. What do you mean by social game? And, and I didn't know the odds would be better from one game to the other.
5: Oh, the odds change very drastically from game to the next. There are certain games like uh, roulette where your odds of winning are very, very low. But, uh, yes, uh, blackjack has the best odds in terms of how much the house wins versus how much the customers win. And it's nice to sit around a table with folks and uh, chat. It's somehow a little bit more low-key. Than craps, where everybody's shouting and throwing dice and mm-hmm. not usually winning. That's another. That's another game that's heavily tilted towards the house.
0: So if you're a novice, you don't have a lot of money, and you just want to kind of have a fun, easygoing social time gambling, you'd recommend blackjack.
5: I'd recommend blackjack, and I'd also recommend giving yourself a limit and maybe going to one of the cheaper casinos uh, because you can pay less per hand at the cheaper casinos than you will at, say, the Bellagio or Wynn. You're going to lose a lot more money a lot more quickly, and you will lose money. That's the thing about gambling. Almost nobody wins. So <laughs> you've got to go in and see it as your entertainment cost if you're,
0: if you're into Set it. Set a limit and consider it an entertainment cost. That's good advice. And then let's wrap it up talking about weddings or affirmations of your wedding vows. Uh, this is just a, a very popular part of the Las Vegas experience, it sounds like.
5: Oh, yeah. It's a huge industry, and I don't think there's any other place in the world that marries people as creatively as they do in Vegas. You can have a Cirque du Soleil wedding where they'll hoist you up on ropes and you get married in midair. You can have one, two, or three Elvises officiating at your wedding, one being young Elvis, one being middle-aged, and one being almost dead. (laughs) Uh, there are also weddings uh, that are gothic weddings where the minister rises from a coffin. Uh, basically, whatever your fantasy is for your marriage, you could do it in Vegas. There are so many hundreds of, of these tiny chapels uh, as well as chapels within the major resorts.
0: Do people do this as a kitschy, fun uh, entertainment part of their group get-together in Vegas where a couple of people will do an affirmation and they'll, they'll all attend and it's sort of like Rocky Horror Picture Show?
5: I think so. You know, the institution of marriage has a rather stodgy reputation. So by getting married in this wacky way, you're kind of saying your sex life isn't dead, perhaps.
0: So let's just tell me what it would cost. I'm going to go to Las Vegas. I'm going to meet a dozen of my friends and my wife and I are going to take everybody out one night and we're going to have another uh, reaffirm our vows. Just the, the, the ballpark. What am I going to pay to do that?
5: Oh, there's no ballpark, really. It really can vary greatly. I mean, you can get married in Vegas for as little as a hundred and twenty-five dollars total if you do a drive-through ceremony. If you never get out of your car. Oh
0: I want a uh, kitschy little chapel with Elvis <laughs> officiating. Okay, okay, just tell me this. I want to rent. That a... would be
5: three hundred or four hundred.
0: Okay, so probably. I'm going to rent a kitschy chapel, and it comes with Elvis. I can do that for an hour for three hundred bucks.
5: Probably, possibly less.
0: Maybe uh, in this nowadays, economy, you... Elvis is going for yeah, cheap.
5: Yeah, probably.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring a very important cultural part of the United States, Las Vegas, and Pauline Frommer's written the book, Pauline Frommer's Las Vegas. Pauline, if you're going to sum it up just with one sort of attitude that people take to Las Vegas, what would that be?
5: I guess fun. You go to Vegas to just let it all hang out, uh, experience a different side of yourself, and hopefully not lose too much money.
0: <laughs> Pauline Fromers, Las Vegas. Thanks so much, Pauline. Thank you. Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one arm band is crashing. All's home's down the drain.
2: Viva Las Vegas turning in the nighttime, turning nighttime.
6: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We had help today from Sarah McCormick, Pat O'Connor, the Radio Foundation in New York, and from WYPR Baltimore. You'll find more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves.
2: Viva Las Vegas!
6: Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides... Take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.